Rolling. Renegades. Andre and I had this big idea. Why isn't this a CE? CE by podcast. Mind blowing. People don't even know people like her exist. Renegades. I had to have the people who didn't believe in me. Between one day and the next, everything changed. Somebody found you. Thank God they found you. Shining a light on those people. And by the way, you're going to be inspired. You can't contain this, Sybil. You can't contain it. Nurses know how to solve shit. Nailed it. Renegades. Welcome to the Renegade Podcast, a revolutionary approach to continuing education for nurses by nurses who are shining a light on the innovators, the creatives, the renegades, who are blowing up the boxes that the rest of the world is still trying to think outside of. On today's podcast, we have Brendan Vermeyer. He's a mental and metabolic health scientist and researcher, functional medicine educator, writer, and speaker. He is a board-certified holistic health practitioner, master nutrition coach, master personal trainer, USAW sports performance coach, and CrossFit trainer. And that's not all. He began his career as a personal trainer and nutrition coach at the age of 18 after disappointingly being medically discharged from the United States Navy SEAL training pipeline due to an injury. After being exposed to the power of functional lab testing, In the start of his career, he began intensely pursuing that as a career path, which has led him to be widely regarded as one of the top leading experts in metabolic health and functional education. There's a lot more, and you'll hear it on the podcast. But in summary, this man is a badass and brilliant, and uh, I know you're going to learn a lot from him. If you're a nurse and you're listening to this podcast, you can head over to renegade.pro, R-N-E-G-A-D-E.pro afterward and actually get a CE credit for listening to the podcast. Have fun. Tell us how you came into the holistic medicine space and because your story, I mean, you were yourself, right? Struggling. Yeah. I mean, I, my aspiration as a teenager was to do the Navy SEAL thing. And after uh, that medical discharge and kind of felt like my life dream got ripped away, it didn't take me too long to go to my backup plan, which was personal training and nutrition coaching. And so I really jumped in more from the fitness, nutrition, optimizing human performance. Uh, and of course, you know, every, you know, young fit dude, they, they want to work with athletes and they want to train athletes, but that's not your clientele. Your clientele is the standard American population, which is metabolic syndrome and fatty liver and sluggish thyroid and this kind of standard American metabolism archetype that good old uncle Sam, I like to call that. So then it's like, well, this is what I have to learn how to work with this. These are the people that I, you know, am making a living off and serving and and all of that. Meanwhile, I was really struggling with my own health in general. I was super fit, but of course, fitness and health aren't exactly the same thing. You know, there is a positive correlation, but you know, you could be really fit and still have IBS, IBD or autoimmunity or in my case, you know, I got diagnosed with major depressive disorder and ADHD when I was 21. And then literally it was two weeks after my diagnosis and getting put on three psychiatric drugs. 
that I woke up in the intensive care unit breathing out of the tube because I intentionally overdosed. So I went through the psychiatric system and I saw firsthand, like you can't get a more, you know, personal up close experience to what psychiatric medicine is today. And so over the years, as I kind of worked through that in my own healing journey, you know, my career has organically evolved from nutrition, fitness, holistic health coaching, board certified holistic health practitioner, functional medicine, functional medicine educator. And now I'm more just kind of working into the realm of just being a scientist and kind of trying to get away from some of that because it's like, you know, we need, we need more and more health coaches and practitioners and functional, you know, we need all of that. But also like we really need to advance the science and advance the education around. We like, we need public health education is what, what we need ultimately. And so this is where I think there's so much job opportunity in holistic health and functional medicine and it's a very kind of budding industry. It's very malleable and ambiguous. And so it needs a lot of structure and uh, it needs a lot more science. Like we need to really validate the stuff that we preach because uh, a lot of the, the stuff that we get excited about, uh, the science is a little bit weak behind. We have good concepts and paradigms, but how do you apply that? How do you teach that in a way that the general population can utilize, especially when we're just being censored? Right. Right. When you say you want to advance the science, like what does that mean for you and how do you go about doing that? Because I'm very curious, you know, just in my own journey with health. I mean, I know that you kind of know what's going on with me. The whole the whole naturopathic holistic side, like I did all that after my first diagnosis and, you know, it obviously didn't work. Right. But that's not to say that it wasn't good for me or it didn't have health benefits, but there was no science behind it really. Like, you know, the, the ozone therapy and the Mm -hmm. sodium bicarb, like there's no controlled trials. There's no, you know, but the concepts, like you said, are good. And the, and the observational data is good. Right. But you know, do we really, do we need that science? Do we need the controlled trials to make it legitimate? I guess I'm kind of curious where you think the science should go. You know, it's, it's kind of a big mess because like we have, we have the right ideology and paradigms and principles. And, you know, like this is where a lot of times when I'm, you know, speaking to the public and stuff, I'm like, all right, instead of getting caught up in what all these functional medicine influencers and ambassadors are saying differently, like focus on what we're all saying in common, right? Like we're all saying processed food sucks. We're all saying environmental toxicity is an issue. We're all saying, you know, stress is a, is a big contributor, right? Like we're all preaching just that fundamental lifestyle of the clean whole food, organic diet and moving your body every day and the sleep hygiene and the stress management, so on and so forth. Um, and then when you start getting into more like holistic treatments, whether it's supplement protocols or ozone, a lot of that, like there isn't enough really weight of science behind it. And you really can't say that some of these you can't say like curcumin is as potent of an anti-inflammatory as something like, um, you know, Humira, which is a big IBD drug. That's a TNF alpha blocker. Right. So a lot of what I try to do with educating, you know, whoever is like, I'm really looking at the pharmaceutical science and what is big pharma doing? What are they rolling out? What's the efficacy of that drug? What's the mechanism of action and how can we have, uh, like what can we do holistically and functionally that works on those same mechanisms? Mm. You know, maybe it's not quite as potent, right? Cause a pharmaceutical, a synthetic compound that it's like, 
we're going to inhibit that enzyme or we're going to activate that receptor or we're going to block that cytokine or whatever it is. And it does it very, very potently. And the whole point of pharmaceutical science is finding this molecular target. It's like a, a chain, um, a chain of events, a sequence of events of like, well, this triggers this negative cascade that induces this pathophysiological mechanism. And if we can just boot, like we, we use this compound to just block this one itty bitty step, it, it does, it, it prevents that cascade from kind of really going. And so that's the molecular targets. And so in which case there are no side effects, there are only effects and you hope you, <laughs> you hope you get enough of the ones that you're inten- intending on and not. Yeah. You know? Well, and like, for example, the Humira that I just mentioned, which, you know, you turn on TV and ask your doctor about Humira and, you know, for rheumatoid or ulcerative colitis or whatever, um, it's a, basically a designer antibody. They, they create these designer antibodies that, you know, then you can take and that designer antibody is like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to bind and neutralize TNF alpha, which is a major pro-inflammatory cytokine that's implicated in some of these autoimmune conditions. Um, and so it's blocking that signal, but then you kind of ask like, well, wait, let me listen to that small voice while they're distracting me with beautiful imagery of like, it may increase my risk of infection and that could kill me. Right. Like, and it's like, well, think about that. If you're blocking what is basically a pro-inflammatory messenger of the immune system, it's an immunosuppressive drug. That's why it gives you symptom relief from your autoimmunity is it's, it's shutting down your immune system's activity, which yeah, that increases the risk of infection. And right now, with depression, they have in phase two clinical trials of basically very similar drug, but instead of blocking TNF alpha, it blocks interleukin six, which is the most well studied pro inflammatory cytokine. We know obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease and depression are all associated with higher interleukin six. And they already tested it for autoimmunity, it had mixed efficacy. So they're like, well, it didn't really work for like rheumatoid arthritis but let's try it for depression because we know that high interleukin six causes a lot of depression. And so it's like, okay, why is nobody asking like, but, but why are those cytokines high? Right? Like they're just trying to snuff out that signal because of what that can do from a symptom relief. But it's like, shouldn't we be asking what's driving the high interleukin six, like the obesity and the diabetes and the, you know, all these lifestyle and environmental induced things. Right. So, but also the idea that we're rolling out these immunosuppressive drugs during an infectious disease pandemic, it's like, anybody yeah. see an issue with that? Like, <laughs> we'll treat your depression, but you might get an infection, but then we have a shot for that, right? Like, I can see. So I'm looking, I'm listening to not only the information you're telling me, but also the person saying it. And if you don't mind, I'd like to just stick a pin into where you are. Because so much of what, where we are in this conversation, because so much of what you've said has made me so curious about the person saying it. Because I could tell you're obviously curious as fuck, <laughs> part of my language. Um, you're able to take really complex uh, scientific and biochemical information and distill it into something very easy to understand. So that's really cool and necessary about what you do. But what was it? And you glossed over it a little bit before. What was it about you? What happened to you? And maybe, maybe there's one or two, or maybe something just comes to mind. What happened? What was the event in your life that made everything look different from one day to the next? 
and because I want to uh, grab more of the person <laughs> saying all yeah. this stuff and then move move on. No, I mean, honestly, Karen, I really appreciate the question, the opportunity, because these days I feel like I get just blasted through the internet all day, every day, people trying to pick my brain for free and kind of clawing for just like, <laughs> yeah. tell me what to do. And, and it's like, I'm pouring out content. And a lot of times it's like, you can't even fully appreciate like my knowledge or work without really knowing like, how did I get here? And how, how did I get to the point that without a college degree, I lecture to medical doctors for a living, right? Like that doesn't even make sense. And that's where it's like, well, you know, I think um, looking back, like as a teenager, I think I was kind of a high functioning depressed teenager, but also like what teenager isn't kind of depressed with all the pressure of, you know, coming into adulthood and trying to figure out your purpose in life and where do you fit into this world? And I always felt like a black sheep anyways. And you know, I've never identified as my diagnoses, right? Like, even though I, I was, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and ADHD, not till I was 21. The first time I was put on medication was when I was 17. I was a senior in high school doing a uh, physical for athletic participation. I mentioned that like, uh, yeah, like feel kind of down, kind of, I don't know what words I use, but without any lab testing, without a referral to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, no evaluation, just here's a prescription for Zola, right? And I'm not saying that's necessarily a horrible thing. Although now when you factor in like, oh, all these drugs have a stern black box warning, but they're prescribing it to teenagers without mm -hmm. any kind of objective evaluation, right? Um, so it's like I did the Zola 2017, made me feel worse, made me feel like an apathetic, anhedonic zombie, um, you know, but like I was a tough kid and I was very focused as you, I'm an intense obsessive personality. That's just my archetype by nature, hence the Navy SEAL thing. And so having what was at the time my life goal and kind of dream and aspiration of being Navy SEAL ripped away due to what they deemed as a pre-existing injury, that definitely sent me more downhill. Um, and I, I did have kind of a self-loathing, self-hatred complex going on. I had self-destructive. I mean, first off, anybody that's kind of a teenager joining the Navy SEALs, eh, it seems a little self-destructive in general, right? Like you're choosing hell as a job, right? Like, you know, hell week is, you know, in the first month of buds, right? So I don't think I was really in a great mental place in, in general, but, you know, as a teenager, I didn't have any kind of construct of what is depression? Was that look like? Was that feel like? Um, but honestly, it was really, it got worse when I was, you know, 21, where uh, I was working as personal trainer, nutrition coach, and I was going to school full time. So I was working full time and going to school full time. And then I got into a really toxic relationship uh, that I think if I just simply said kind of the narcissist empath, empath phenomena, uh, she was like 12 years older, three kids, she cheated on me in the beginning and the end of the relationship. Um, it was just a night you, you can't imagine a more toxic relationship. And then while we were in the relationship, I mean, my mental health was deteriorating. I was on medication and it was in the beginning of the relationship. That was when I was 21. I got diagnosed um, and she cheated on me and I found out about it. And that just was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And I overdosed, woke up a few days later in the intensive care unit, went through the psychiatric ward did all the things, had the psychiatrist just gaslighting me to my face and acting like I'm this, you know, broken soul that can only be mended by pills. And of course, like I was pretty smart 
health and fitness professionals. So it's like, I knew a thing or two about physiology and biochemistry. And so just the language that they use, and it's like the psychiatric ward that I was locked up in after getting out of the intensive care unit. My very first question was, what are my medical rights here? Like, do I have the right to refuse treatment? Cause I don't, I don't want to get locked up in here. I don't want to be mm-hmm. here. I, I don't belong here. Like I see who's in here and these people are very unstable and they probably do need, need to be medicated, but that's not me. I'm a high functioning young man. And they told me, they're like, well, you know, um, you could refuse treatment, but if you do, and we deem that you're a threat to yourself and others, we can overpower that. And then you get sent to an asylum and the asylum is way less fun than this place. So if I were you, I would just play along, you know, is what they told me. So I'm like, well, shit, like, I don't want to go to an asylum. That sounds not too fun. So I, I was locked up in there for like five days. You never get to step outside. You, you don't ever feel sunlight on your face. Uh, zero contact with the outside world. You're I was going to say, where are your where are your support systems? Did you have parents, friends, aunts, uncles? You know, I mean, I had some family visit me in the hospital, but I definitely feel very let down by my innermost circle. Um, like even when I got out of the hospital and I was you know, trying to navigate this toxic relationship, unfaithful there. Um, and then I get this fat medical bill, you know, and I'm broke. Like I'm a college kid working. I had no money. I go to my dad to ask for financial support and was basically told like, nope, you're on your own. Cause we don't agree with your life decisions. I'm like, cool. Well, I almost just died and you almost just lost your son. I don't know how I'm going to pay these bills. Meanwhile, I'm in this manipulative gaslighting narcissistic, relationship. And then, you know, the funny thing, like everything I'm saying is more my own stuff, but that's not even the main thing that inspired my path because, um, we were living in a house that was, I think moldy. It it was a very musty kind of moldy house. Um, and it was actually my, at the time fiance, she was the one that got really, really ill. You know, I was struggling mentally. She was struggling mentally. She had unresolved trauma and, you know, a lot of trauma from her childhood and physical abuse and stuff. Um, But it was actually trying to save her that really inspired my career. That's how I got so into psychology and, you know, familiarizing myself with some of these concepts like gaslighting and narcissism and borderline personality disorder and whatever. But she actually fell severely ill and nobody could figure out what was wrong with her. Um, you know, we went to a chiropractor, we went to a naturopath, we went to our primary care as soon as she was getting sick. And it was very stark, like the house was already old and musty, but the bathtub overflowed when, you know, we were giving the baby a bath one day and it was maybe within a few months that she just woke up and severe musculoskeletal cramping. And that was like this very marked point of what became this downward spiral into just darkness And everybody in the household was kind of being affected differently. And this is why I later, like years down the road, when I got exposed to the concept of mold illness, I was like, oh my God, like that was it. Mm -hmm. And so it was really, it was trying to save her and help her with her health ailment that nobody could figure out. That's what got me into functional medicine. At the time, I was just like a nerdy holistic health coach, personal trainer, but then I dove deep into methylation because she tested positive for MTHFR. And then we were doing parasite cleanses and we're taking all these supplements and we're reading all these, 
you know, functional medicine, you know, Ben Lynch and all, all these different kind of functional medicine ambassadors and just nothing, nothing was helping her at all. And, and there was a lot of dynamics there. Um, and so it's like, as much as I tried to help her and save her, she wouldn't let me. And then she ends up cheating on me behind my back for like months and I find out about it and I'm still trying. So, you know, it took like two and a half years before I finally was able to like walk away and separate myself from that because it was just one of those, you can't save somebody that's not trying to save themselves. Right. It's like, right. Well, I was going to say was some of the connection through conflict, actually the thing that was preventing her from getting well, cause she needed the, there was a lot of self-destructive behavior there. And I don't mean to smile. I'm just like, Oh no, you're I'm so you're fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I've I mean, seen that. Fast. I've seen that so many times, you know, like, uh, like clients will say the only time I ever, like they, they're sick, can't figure out what's wrong with them. Um, they've been to all kinds of different doctors and then they say this little thing. The only time I ever got any attention in my life was when I was sick. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, there's so there's so much to it, which is why even with my career now, I still I try to I try to really weave the psychology and the physiology together because it, it's it gets so convoluted and it's both where the dysfunctional physiology is wrecking the psychology, the psychology is wrecking the physiology through the neurolimbic system. It just mm-hmm. becomes this this toxic mess, right? And if, if there is something, you know, like mold and methylation issues or gluten and, you know, whatever sort of root cause factor that we want to sprinkle into that, it just makes it all the more volatile, unresolved trauma is a big one. HPA is a big one. And, but that's what it felt like is I'm trying so hard to save you, her, uh, and she's just dragging me under the water with her. So finally, you know, I, I got away, I separated myself and that's kind of when my career path really began and when my personal healing really began. And I actually, I just realized like two days ago would have been her birthday. Um, but she took her life a year ago in 2020. And, um, I hadn't spoken to her in four years. Um, and so when we separated, it's like, I went on to become successful and healed myself and moved on and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I wasn't there, but she obviously declined and took her life in 2020 and left behind her three children. And, uh, you know, here I am just kind of champion going on. So like I replay all this, not as much as I used to, but it's just like, you, you couldn't make this stuff up. Like you couldn't make up a more like tragic and volatile story. Um, And so it's like, you can't possibly be able to fully understand what I do professionally without kind of understanding. It's like, yeah, what I had to, I had to go through hell to, to get here. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's crazy. Yeah. I remember when that happened, I was in your class. Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. That was so tragic. No, you can't make, Yeah. actually people do make that stuff up. That's the, stuff that people go to the movie theater to I'm, but I'm sorry it was your life but I'm so glad you're here and learned all you have and and how that experience you've taken it embodied it made it your own and now you're taking what you learned for yourself and the the trial and tragedy with this other person and now helping so many people with that Brendan can you can you share with us kind of like 
I know that you're not so much client focused, you said anymore, but like, and we talked about this in, in the class a lot was, you know, the clients that are married to their diagnoses and that, you know, married to being sick, married to, you know, not getting better. And, and when somebody comes to you, can you kind of take us through like how you can balance both that, the psychology with the physiology, just what does that kind of look like? Because I think, yeah. You know, I think even for nurses in clinical practice, just awareness that that there's a bigger picture, there's a more complete picture about how people get well, and and you know, oftentimes in in conventional medicine, we don't necessarily take into consideration the mental health side, right? Um, you know, you just get pushed through the system, and if you have fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, well, then we're going to slap this and that on you. But what's going on upstairs, like? You know, and and on the other side, maybe with the mental health, like, are we addressing some of these other root causes, like you were saying, the mold or that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's so hard. Um, It's so hard. And, you know, it's not that I'm trying to like, (laughs) I I guess I'm not quite as client centered as I used to be, because in a lot of ways, sometimes I want to hit my head against the wall because it's like, help me help you. Right. Like Mm -hmm. so often these people, you know, they've experienced medical trauma and, and feeling let down by conventional and kind of chewed up, spit out, disappointed by conventional. And then they, you know, waste a small fortune on all these experimental functional doctors and modalities and have nothing to show for it. And they've, you know, the conventional is like, nothing is wrong with you. It's all in your head. And then functional is like, no, actually you have these 10 to 15 pseudo diagnoses, like leaky gut, leaky brain, MCAS, mold, you know, all these just pseudo diagnostic labels that are not actually real diagnoses. And that might be just, and what are they even basing that off? So now they've been convinced by, by functional people that there's a million things wrong with them, which just scares the crap out of them and makes them more orthorexic and volatile psychologically. And so a lot of times the people that come to me, they have actually haven't even done like a very effective like lab workup that actually objectively shows, yeah, look how messed up your physiology is. So I find in a lot of ways, these people that turn to functional, it's not always doing them any good because they're getting convinced that they're sicker than sometimes they are. Like there are people that are truly sick and they, they need that functional but honestly, it's like one in 10. The other nine have been convinced they, they're sick. They identify as that sickness and illness. And part of the problem too is with social media, you know, all these, you know, health influencers are just pumping out free content. So nobody wants to actually like choose a professional. I am committed to working with you to help me reach my health goals. They're just bound, they're window yeah. shopping. They're, mm-hmm. let me take free information from this person, yeah. this person, this person, this person. Mm-hmm. There's no commitment. There's no loyalty. There's no follow through. You know, and it's like, in, in some ways, I think at a subconscious level, they convince themselves that they're trying to help themselves by consuming all this free content. And all the while, they're not actually making any changes mm-hmm. to their lifestyle. And a lot of times they're looking for quick fixes and something else I see is people use functional medicine as an excuse to spiritually bypass the inner work that they really need to do because it's like, I don't need to face my deep, dark traumas or demons or whatever. I just need to run all the testing to get that fancy functional medicine protocol that poof makes it all go away. So there's this weird toxic psychology thing going on 
of like you mix in a lot of chronic inflammation at the populist level of failing conventional system, an unstructured, inconsistent, what the hell is going on functional thing. Um, and then people just window shopping and consuming free content without ever really making a commitment to themselves to actually make the changes necessary. So this is where the only way I can effectively help clients is by putting up hella boundaries of like the only way I will possibly take you on as a client is if you're really committing to a full program so I can actually do what I know how to do. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's one in a hundred. I get tons of inquiries all the time. Very few people actually sign up and I, it's, it's a real issue. So this is where it's like, I feel like the best thing I can do is take a step back and put out good content that kind of just dropping breadcrumbs and leading people to have their own revelations, their own conclusions, giving them the tools. So this is where I really think like we have to all be educating the public, you know, kind of united. So it's, it's a huge mess. So, but Brendan, that was one of the things that I thought was so, so awesome about your courses, because, you know, I, I found some free content um, of yours on Instagram and you were um, promoting, you know, a a basic lab work course. Right. So I took that course and. And I heard about it every day. I mean, it's super cool for. Because you're both total geeks. Right. Super cool. I think for nurses in general, especially listening to this podcast, like, Oh, right. Like, what is the CBC really all about? And do I understand it? Because I can guarantee you that, no, we don't really, un- not like you understand it. And so that was really helpful. But what I really loved about your course was how you pointed us in this direction of like, you know, what's scientifically validated? What tests do you need? Because in the functional world, like, I mean, I'm a prime example. I've done so many tests. And, y- you know, what did I ever use that data for? Nothing. Right. So I spent a lot of money on a lot of tests to be told what was wrong with me. And then there was nothing that ever came out of that, either because I didn't pursue it or because, you know, the practitioner didn't know what to do with the information. So I really loved that approach. And I thought, you know, for healthcare providers, like super cool. Right. Because it really helped me personally. But I also love like what it could do for nurses in general. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, that's a a huge kind of issue in itself, which is why I just recently designed my own lab test that I'm getting ready to launch. And, um, I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of cool because we've got all of these, you know, conventional biomarkers and tests, primarily blood work, you know, sometimes stool testing or urine things or whatever, cerebrospinal fluid, right. From spinal tap. But we've got this wealth of, of established, well-studied, validated, you know, biomarkers through conventional, but yeah, the way that they use those biomarkers, um, I think is very incomplete. Right. And then of course, you know, you can make an argument about disease ranges versus optimal functional ranges for health. Right. And that's where just like glucose is a really good example where it's like, you know, most, individuals are never going to get told like, Oh, your glucose is high. So it gets like over 110 by which point they're already pre-diabetic. And mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Oh, you get to 115. All right, here's your metformin. So there's no preventative. There's no pro- proactive there. There isn't a whole lot of like, Hey, you know, your glucose and HB1C and C peptide and insulin are starting to creep up a little bit. Like you might want to eat better. You want, you might want to exercise more. That's not the doctor's job. You know, that's not what they're there for. And it's, 
not really a fault against them. It's just not the system that they work for. They're not a health coach, right? Um, so there's that side of it, you know, but then in the functional world, which is again, very unregulated, um, there is no real regulation of like any kind. So then there's this explosion of functional lab testing and a lot of these functional lab tests, they're, they're new, they're experimental. Most of them don't really have established clinical significance behind them. And if they did, they would have been adopted into conventional healthcare. Now, we also have to realize that it takes about 10 to 20 years of science and research and development to have enough weight of evidence behind a clinical tool to say, hey, this is a very reliable test or biomarker. We know what it means. It's clinically relevant. So let's use it in conventional healthcare. And like a good example is with like celiac and gluten testing where, you know, we, we have these new markers like tissue transglutaminase that, yeah, it's very established and it is available through conventional healthcare, but just because it's available doesn't mean doctors are using it. Mm-hmm. Like the, the diagnostic criteria for, for celiac is you have to get to Marsh 4, which is your microvilli on your intestines are just disintegrated. You know, it's like, it'd be like waiting for a forest fire to totally demolish a forest before you go, Hey, I think, I think there's like a forest fire. Like, do we want to do anything about that? So, but now we have these biomarkers like tissue transglutaminase that like, Hey, if this is elevated, that's reflective of an autoimmune process in your intestines. We don't have to wait for the forest to burn down. We can test this now and say, Hey, there is an autoimmune process. Stop eating gluten. And so that's an example of honestly, that particular marker is much more widely used and popular and functional than conventional, but it's available in both. Mm-hmm. Whereas other things, the most popular tests in the industry, most of them really don't have established clinical significance. And a lot of functional practitioners are not using clinically established like blood work. And it's like, you know, when you go to a doctor, there's a reason why they're not running an organic acid test or an HTMA or a stool test to evaluate your health from a medical perspective. They're doing blood work. And so why are we using something different in functional medicine and saying, well, this test came out yesterday or last year, but here's what it means. And we're going to. When was it that you started tying all this stuff together with like the common labs that are being used and not used to their full capacity? Like what, what was it about you that you started pulling those strings? Yeah. Well, in, in the way it all started was in, in the very beginning of my career as a personal trainer and nutritionist, I was working for this billion dollar health club corporation that honestly is pretty awesome. Um, and they had a, they, I don't know if they have it anymore, but at least back then they had a lab testing program. And so they are, they were very forward thinking of like, Hey, even though we're a health club, we're a gym, um, we want to incorporate data, you know, science lab testing into health building programs. And so, in a lot of ways. Yeah, right. Like what a novel concept, right? So in a lot of ways they were kind of pioneering. And so they literally trained us even as personal trainers to be able to speak to and sell lab testing. And the lab testing that they offered was, was blood work, you know, through lab for request, uh, your standard CM, CMP, CBC, um, blood work. They also had a salivary cortisol test and a food sensitivity test, but it was primarily just a blood panel but more looking at it from, yeah, more of a functional and kind of optimal range. And, you know, obviously like a lot of legality around that of like, well, we're not, we're a gym. We're not interpreting it from a medical perspective. We're looking at it in regards to 
we want to help you improve your physiological health, you know, with your membership and with your personal training and your nutrition coaching. And I was very obsessed with that ideology where, you know, working with overweight clients, right? Like, what's your goal? I want to lose weight. Uh, Do you want to feel better or get healthier? Well, sure, but that will happen when I lose weight. It's like, maybe. How do you want to measure progress on this healing journey? Well, the scale, obviously. Like, what's going to tell you if we're making progress? Well, the scale is going down. I'm like, (laughs) well, that's not going to be a good way to go. So how about we use more sensitive, measurable data to guide that, right? So this is where, like, instead of weight, let's do body fat percentage or VO2 testing to measure your respiratory quotient and cardiovascular fitness. Let's use very sensitive biomarkers in, in your blood because, like, I guarantee, you know, your glucose and your triglycerides and your HB1C and your liver enzymes and your cholesterol, like, those things are all going to change before you see the number on the scale change, right? So that's how it started. And so mm-hmm. I, I became obsessed with, how can I be that guy that can use that lab testing? Like what happens when decent nutrition and exercise isn't enough? That's who I wanted to be. I wanted to be the guy that you're already working out. You're already eating pretty clean and you're still not making progress. Let's look to the lab testing and identify like what's going on internally that is obstructing your ability to make progress. So that was the thread. And I just kept pulling it and pulling it. But then that led me into the functional lab testing world. And I, I didn't even know all these functional lab tests existed of stool testing and urine testing and hair testing and saliva testing. I didn't know any of that existed. Now I'm like, well, this is really cool. But then I found the inconsistencies of like, wait, this data doesn't have a whole lot of scientific evidence behind what it really means. And then I see all these practitioners doing these experimental tests without doing that validated blood work, I'm like, hang on, like there's a mm-hmm. huge yeah. gap here and huge there's disconnect. a big mess going on here. So that yeah. was kind of how it started. It's fascinating. I love that. I didn't even know that that's kind of how it all started for you with the, with just the basic lab test. Like, yeah, yeah. Just something didn't smell right. And then, you yeah. know, you, you hear tests don't guess and it, like, here's the thing is you see a lot of functional, I see this every day on the internet. You see these functional medicine ambassadors say stuff to the effect of like blood work doesn't tell you anything or, you know, blood work, that technology is 40 years old. Like you need all of these functional tests. And it's like, there's a, there's a logical issue with that where it's like, okay, you know, maybe first off, we have way more blood biomarkers today than we did 40 years ago. Now, as far as like the basic blood chemistry, CMP, CBC, have we really changed anything about how we measure that? Well, we'll know, but we have 40 years of clinical research behind it. The weight of evidence is so much greater, whereas like a urine test that came out yesterday and there's one peer-reviewed <laughs> scientific study that kind of says maybe it matters. So just because the technology is old doesn't mean it's irrelevant. In fact, it probably makes it more relevant because we have more research behind it. So this is where like with the lab test I created for mental health that we're getting ready to launch, I didn't want to like take a bunch of experimental biomarkers. I wanted to take biomarkers that they're already clinically established, but nobody's applying the new research of we now know through the past 10 to 20 years of research, well, actually like CRP, mm-hmm. protein, it's not just an infectious inflammatory marker. It's not just 
a cardiovascular risk marker. Now we know it's like, actually, as CRP goes up, it causes leaky brain or your neurons produce CRP. It can also reflect neuroinflammation and leaky brain and be a risk factor for neurodegenerative disease and ALS and depression. So a big part of what I'm trying to do is take old established biomarkers, but applying new science of how, how can we use these more effectively and more functionally? Yeah, I would like for you to clarify one thing about CRP, what you're just talking about. Is it the elevating CRP that causes that, or, or is it an, an indication of that happening? Because what I just heard you say is it's actually the C-reactive protein. When it elevates, does it do that, or is that a, a downstream effect of something else, the elevation? Yeah. So, I mean, I, that, that's probably one of the best examples of one of the markers I included on my test because like we all know CRP, it's, it's the most well-studied inflammatory marker on the face of the planet. Um, and it's already well-established that like, yeah, high CRP is, you know, a prognostic, uh, cardiovascular disease risk marker or infectious, um, you know, infections and whatnot. So this is where it's just like, well, what's the physiology behind it of, you know, as interleukin-6 goes up, the liver and hepatocytes start producing more of this complement protein of CRP. And so the CRP complement protein with 48-hour half-life, okay, well, as it goes up, once it gets to a certain threshold, it causes the opening of the tight junctions in the blood-brain mm-hmm. barrier. And then, you know, once you have leaky brain, that, that's a massive neuroinflammatory cascade that can be induced. And so this is where there's so much new science around old markers that's expanding our concept of what can we use this marker for. So, like, that's a big thing right now with, like, mental health research and neurodegenerative research is there is sort of a hunt for are there biomarkers that we can use for mental illness? Because like I was saying in the beginning of the conversation, our psychiatry model, there, there's no such thing as lab testing for psychiatry. Mm-hmm. It's all subjective qualifications of, mm-hmm. you know, oh, you have the, the personality of somebody with schizophrenia or autism or depression. And it's like, shouldn't we be using some sort of objective data? And now we're seeing there are so many uh, inflammatory mechanisms that underlie the severity of mental illness and neurodegeneration. So now there's a lot of this research going into well, what inflammatory mm-hmm. markers, you know, correlate with mental illness and neurodegeneration like CRP and homocysteine and so on and so forth. So it feels like such a bridge um, that you're building between the functional world and the and the conventional, because when you talk about these new these new labs and markers that you're creating, the conventional world will will probably respond favorably because it's got so much history and, you know, science behind it. And on the other side, on the functional side, it's like, you know, wanting to find root cause and why, why are we inflamed? Right. So it feels like that's what you are is a bridge between these two worlds that feel right. Like like Aquaman, but with slower. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Totally. (laughs) It's definitely what I'm trying to do. And, and so part of what I'm doing right now is I'm in the process of setting up a, uh, 501c3 not-for-profit research foundation because, you know, I want to, it's like in a lot of ways, um, like I'm speaking at a integrative mental, uh, integrative medicine for mental health conference here in two weeks and uh, down in Georgia Mm -hmm. and I'll be, uh, kind of speaking about the panel I created 
Cause it's like, well, the panel I created, it's, it's like 90% conventional biomarkers with maybe like 10% kind of ex- more, more functional biomarkers. But it's, it's that it's like trying to popularize conventional biomarkers with functional providers, mm-hmm. but interpreting it in a functional way. And so, yeah, and in a way I am trying to bridge that gap, which is this, like there's, there's so much polarization, right? I mean, political polarization is at an all time high and same thing. It's like, you're either in the conventional camp or the functional. It's like, actually, no, I mean, the truth is somewhere in the middle and why are we not kind of combining the best of both worlds? So that is kind of part of the, part of what I love how you're doing it that way. I just feel like the conventional world is going to be so um, excited about what you're doing and they will buy in as well, the functional side. I love it. Yeah. Well, in some ways too, it's like, I, you know, I mean, ah, it's kind of crazy how I stumbled into this um, and how it came to be. Cause it's like, well, based on the current science and literature, like, yeah, I mean, within like 10, 20 years, conventional probably is going to start looking at like, oh, maybe we should look at inflammatory biomarkers if you have depression or ALS or neurodegeneration, because yeah, like, I was just, you know, compiling some research last night on, you know, the higher the CRP, the the worse the prognosis is for ALS, right? And so, like, why are we not, you know, measuring and monitoring some of these biomarkers in mental health and neurodegeneration to guide their care and guide their treatment, right? So, I mean, it, it's complicated, but it's like, you look at the evidence behind the biomarkers, you look at the therapeutics and the drugs uh, that they're using to treat or manage these conditions, it all tells a story of like, hey, inflammation, oxidative stress is kind of the the name of the game. Mm -hmm. So we should probably have biomarkers that are reflective of those mechanisms. Yeah. And the mental health aspect is so overlooked about like this chronically running fight or flight, even at a low level, the downstream oxidative stress that this causes, mm-hmm. or that, you know, I even hate the term mind body connection because it, you know, it suggests that there's two separate things that have a connection. It's all one thing. Right. And I, and, um, and, and the huge turnarounds I've seen in the biology when somebody's able to just throw some water on the fire of what's going on up here. Yeah. And what you're suggesting, I mean, the, the panel and what you're suggesting is like, it's, it's not, it's, it's looking at the whole thing, you know, it's not a, no. I think part of the problem is, you know, with that polarization of functional and conventional, you know, they both do some things well, but like conventional is excessively reductionistic, right? They just keep, they keep zooming in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, and you really lose sight of the big picture when you zoom in that much, right? Because like, for example, like you look at conventional and it's like, you could have IBS or IBD and the doctors will say that has nothing to do with your mental illness. That has nothing to do with your cardiovascular health. That has nothing like mm-hmm. the, the inflammation and destruction of the tissue in your gut has nothing to, nothing to do with your diet, nothing to do with your mental illness where it's like, well, hang on you're bringing an interleukin six blocking drug to the market for treatment resistant depression. And we know that IBS, IBD and leaky gut, gut issues raises interleukin six through like lipopolysaccharides, translocating and binding on TLR. Like 
we know the mechanisms, but they're not applying that in a holistic, like total body, all systems are integrated and connected. They just continue to reductionistically compartmentalize. And it's like, well, here's, you know, your steroids for your gut health and here's your statin and here's your antidepressant. But there's all these, you know, root cause mechanistic themes, Mm -hmm. you know, and we can and should be using more holistic ideology so it's just like, it's such a mess, right? It's such a mess. Ugh. It's overwhelming a little bit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the stuff that keeps me up at night. And well, right. you're, like, you're, you're gosh darn common sense. Um, <laughs> death to logic this year, you know? Yeah, I mean, well, you said, well, you said we know that, you know, and then you said a bunch of other smart things I can't repeat. But um, <laughs> do you really think they know? I mean... Well, no, like your, your yeah. typical conventional doctor, they're not, no, they, they, they do what they were told in medical school, like, and that's it. You yeah, know, they're continuing they, education is from the pharmaceutical reps that come to their office. Well, like, or, or they, you know, they get their continuing education by attending conferences that, that I lecture at. Like, you know, I, I am a guy that, like, my, my talk counts as a CME. It counts as a continuing medical education Cause it's like, there's those of us, those of us that are keeping up to date with the science and the literature and thinking ahead and being proactive and using a little thought versus just like, do what I'm told, dispense the pills. Don't think about it. You know what I mean? It just, and, and there is a split even with conventional healthcare of like, there's the ones that it's like, they're choosing to put on blinders and block out all this information of like, no, no pseudoscience, just do what I'm told in this conventional model. But then there's the other side of, you know, conventional that they are open-minded. They are kind of thinking like, well, actually this doesn't make a lot of sense. Like this, this makes a lot of sense in kind of this root cause, you know, paradigm. So there's a lot of layers to it. So many layers. Um, so I'm curious about this idea of, um, you know, like if we're going to go just to the basics, you know, the basic labs, and I'm asking this because, you know, nurses are listening to this, and I think it can be really helpful in the conventional world to understand that just because you fall in the normal range doesn't, you know, like how would a nurse in a conventional practice kind of look beyond, oh, you're, you're perfect because you fall right in the middle range, right? Like what clinically can you share with us that would help them even like, you know, you might want to look at this resource or, you know, like where can we send nurses to learn more about some of the stuff they see every day, but have no idea that there might be more to the picture than what they're seeing on the paper. Yeah. I mean, for one thing with conventional, it's they're ordering testing that they deem there's so many, there's, there's almost like too much structure, right? Like I, I was talking to a good friend, colleague of mine, and we were kind of discussing that of, you know, structure, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, conventional, there's almost too much structure to the point it's a forced confining. And a lot of medical providers, it's like their hands are tied. Like they can't order something because that's not the protocol. That's not the, the standard of care, right? There, there isn't any like wiggle room to be, I don't know, maybe like more creative in the way that you want to practice medicine or take care of your patient or whatever. And, you know, in the functional space, there's a lack of structure to the point. It's like, it's inconsistent. It's not reproducible. Everybody's just doing whatever the hell they want to do. So not, not enough structure, too much structure. And so this is where it's like a lot of times I have clients ask me, well, can you just send me a list of what biomarkers you think I should do? 
I'll take that to my doctor and ask them to run it. That doesn't work either. Like they're not a short order cook. They're only going to order the testing that they deem medically necessary. And that's what's going to get billed through insurance. So, you know, insurance is a huge part of the equation and kind of a forced confining in that realm of, well, what do you like, for example, with uh, gastroenterologists, you know, they'll do a colonoscopy before doing like a non-invasive stool biomarker like calprotectin, even though it's well established that like, hey, that non-invasive fecal marker, it correlates, it has a positive correlation with the findings of colonoscopy. Like, why would we not do that first rather than go through this protocol and flush their system and, you know, do this invasive sticking a camera into their intestines kind of thing? Like, we're just not effectively utilizing some of the clinical tools and biomarkers that are right there at our fingertips, like we talked about with celiac before. Mm -hmm. So I think familiar, like whatever, you know, the the nurse or the doctor, whatever their, you know, field of specialty and study is, whether it's cardiovascular, gastroenterology or whatever, you know, I think familiarizing with like, what tools do I have at my fingertips that I'm not using and how can I be a little bit more familiar with it? But there's a lot, again, to say about the the reference ranges where, you know, I just recently had a client who her fecal calprotectin, you know, kind of the gold standard biomarker of intestinal inflammation was at 120. If it was one point higher, it would have been above the medical reference range. And it's like 120, like that's, that's basically IBD range, but her doctor didn't care at all. And her tissue transglutaminase, that celiac marker was elevated you know, and he's like, well, you don't have celiac. That's ridiculous. It's like, you're waiting for the, the forest to be burnt down right. before you're going to do anything, you know? So that's part mm-hmm. of it is we might want to adjust the reference ranges of like, you know, what should your calprotectin be? If you have good intestinal health, it should be like less than 20 and you're at 120, but you're not going to get diagnosed with IBD till you're at like 150. Like right. we just need to move that needle with our medical reference ranges to make them more preventative, more proactive. Like don't wait until the pathophysiology is just burning out of control before we apply some sort of intervention, whether pharmaceutical or holistic. Yeah. A little more gray area. Yeah. Well, and I love too, like just for nurses in general, like to, to, to look at a CBC and see like the markers on the high end of normal or the low end of normal. And just even starting to question, like, is this, is this okay for my patient? And then being that advocate and saying, you know, just having a conversation with the doctor, right? Like just bringing some awareness around, maybe this isn't what it seems, right? Yeah. I mean, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like with uh, a CBC, if, if the white blood cells are not um, high enough to be deemed a, a, an, an active acute infection, then it doesn't matter. Right. Right. You know, it's, it's not a matter of, oh, it's kind of elevated. Like your immune system seems a little pissed off or you're a little right. bit more inflamed. Same, you know, same with CRP where mm-hmm. even CRP, there's a lot of studies that show, you know, even low levels of CRP, like 3.5 or something. It's like, it's not good. You know, a lot of, a lot of Americans with chronic inflammation are walking around with the CRP between like two and five. And it's like, I don't think that should be acceptable. I don't, I don't think we should wait for a CRP to be 10 before like, well, you have an infection and here's your antibiotics. So it's just, it's just like, again, it's sick care. It's acute care. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is kind of where like microbiome sciences are kind of blasting a lot of holes in. Because we still, I mean, in case the events of 2020 and 2021 are not evidence enough, <laughs> our whole world and, and healthcare model is still based around germ theory. Like all germs are bad. 
and get like, it, and it's just ludicrous to me mm-hmm. what like PCR and antibodies, but then what about white blood cell counts or CRP? So you look at just the way we do it and it's like, oh, well, if you do have high white blood cells, you do have a high CRP of like 10 or more. Well, okay, now you fit the criteria for an infection. Here's your antibiotics, right? Which then now we're learning about all the kind of negative effects of excessively trying to sterilize the world, right? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of where terrain theory is starting to make its rounds of like, oh, well, you know, so, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> another podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, <laughs> would, would you... <laughs> Would you talk about, um, I call, you don't know me very well. I was about to call it the scrotal moment, but you don't know me well enough for me to call it that. But since it's already out, I'll tell you. Um, like one of our first podcasts we did was um, a nurse who's an expert in lymphedema. Mm. And, she, and I told her, I asked her to tell me, tell us about some dramatic win. Like, you know, because a lot of people don't know what the heck that is. And that's even a thing. And. And she told us about this guy who had a like 110 pound scrotum from lymphedema and his sleeve. And then we were both like, oh, so Brendan, do you have any of those very traumatic turnarounds from all this stuff, all the knowledge you've gained from your own experience that you've applied it, helped other people to apply it to themselves and just so you know, know, nurses love these kind of stories. Like we eat well, them up. We we love the stories, but also as a testament to um yeah, applying yeah. applying some of wicked course. common sense and curiosity um, yeah. and doing it a different way. And, you know, yeah. that somebody couldn't access in the conventional or functional world and, and they ran into you and your knowledge and mm-hmm. you're able to help in a way they totally. that wasn't expected. Yeah. I mean, and the thing, like the deeper I get into my career, the the more that I can kind of understand and appreciate like the pharmaceutical allopathic model. Cause it's like, you know, if, if we're concerned about the health of the masses, you know, we need a, a system that we can easily dispense therapeutics that they work and they're powerful. Right. So, you know, it's not like I have an issue with pharmaceuticals or allopathic medicine. It's just, when everything like when our government is viciously propagandizing everything and censoring like health education. And it's like, honestly, the closest thing that we have to like public health education are the pharmaceutical commercials where it's like they're advertising a pharmaceutical, but they're also kind of subliminally messaging this like healthier way of life. Like Trulicity cracks me up where, you know, it's a type two diabetic drug. And they show like a, a relatable, you know, yeah. lower socioeconomic class, like American man. And look at him. He's eating more fruits and veggies and he's active and he's outside, but he also takes his trulicity. And it's like, <laughs> that's the closest thing we have to health education. And then the next commercial is fast food, right? So <laughs> it's just like, what if we spent a fraction of the money that we're using for this propaganda what if we spent some of that towards just like public health education? Here's a message from the CDC. Like, yes, obesity increases your risk of infectious disease. Like how can you become not obese? Right. But we're not doing any of that. And so, you know, client success stories are always really fun, inspiring. And, you know, there's a lot of ways you can move the needle on somebody's perception of their health and their life, even just working on the psychology. Right. But even just recently, one of my higher profile clients, we've been working with um, her sister a little bit now too. 
And I always, you know, for me, I like to see objective data that tells me like we moved the needle on your physiology. Like it's not just you feel a little bit better or you think you got a little bit better. You lost a couple pounds. Like, no, your labs look way better. And we did that 100% holistically. There was no medication involved at all where, you know, I've got this big old lab panel and all these, you know, clinically established biomarkers. And yep, you know, look at that calprotectin and uh, tissue transglutaminase and CRP. And then it's like, hey, lifestyle changes, dietary changes, exercise, psychology, some supplements like vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, probiotics. And then getting that retest result of like, oh, yeah, your CRP went from four down to one and your tissue transglutaminase went from eight down to three and your you know, thyroid hormones got better, your cortisol got better, your CRP and all these inflammatory markers got better. So it's like, yeah, like you can holistically improve your physiology. That's a real thing, even though that type of narrative is being mm-hmm. censored and suppressed in, in, in place of just, you know, eat your fast food, take your drugs, don't question anything. Just makes no sense. So if like, if the current crisis was really because they care about our health, why are, why are we not educating people on how to build up immunity naturally? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Yeah. Doesn't. And is, is that what you find? Um, like without, you know, pharmaceuticals with a bunch of side effects because they're targeting one little place in the chain reaction and, you know, sparking off a bunch of other things or, expensive supplements. I mean, I see, you know, yeah. some of the sickest people I've or sickest looking people I've ever seen are like the people at whole foods with their supplement pill boxes and they're just like yeah. hammering things. But it sounds like just looking at these biomarkers that are, you know, you, that you, you have making these simple changes, not a whole lot of supplementation or if so targeted lifestyle, diet, psychological changes is enough to move the needle if somebody's committed. Yeah, it's a it, like I mean I I love supplements obviously and honestly I think pharmaceutical like I would have made a really yeah. good pharmaceutical scientist in another life and <laughs> and I, I spend most of my time reading pharmaceutical research because I'm yeah. like all right so if inhibiting or modulating this mechanism works so well how can we accomplish that holistically that's that's what I do and try to figure out like let me reverse engineer that equation you know um, cool. That's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, for example, like with neuroinflammation and neurodegeneration, one of the issues, it's big pharma, it's a hunt for let's find a molecular target that if we can figure out how to turn it off or turn it on, and we just do that with a pill or a shot or whatever, and it completely changes that pathophysiology, like that's that's a billion dollar, you know, industry or multi-billion dollar drug that could be made and save lives. So I get it. And I get how even if you worked in the pharmaceutical industry, you could really buy into this ideology of, no, we're, we're helping people, we're saving lives. But I think in a lot of ways, Rise of Big Pharma has really bastardized medicine and it's enabling our self-destructive behaviors as a collective population. Because right. it's like, no, you don't need to take ownership of your life. You don't right. need to try to take care of yourself. You just take the drug mm-hmm. that we give you when you get sick and we're making German pharmaceutical companies billions of dollars. Yeah. But like with um, neurodegeneration, some of the pharmaceutical targets that they're looking at, one of them is the vitamin D receptor. So with microglial cells, which are my favorite cells in the body, uh, immune cells of the central nervous system that basically regulate the neuroinflammatory and neurodegenerative cascade, 
one of the pharmaceutical targets that they're looking at is the vitamin D receptor because they see that these activated cell killing, neuron killing, neurodegeneration facilitating um, microglial cells that are very pro-inflammatory, they express more vitamin D receptors. And they're doing research with using high-dose bioavailable vitamin D, which is calcitriol. And this is mostly, you know, mouse research that you can't, you can't induce neurodegeneration in, in a clinical trial that's not, you know, ethical. Right. But so they, they induce neurodegeneration in mice and then treat them with high doses of vitamin D. And they're like, wait, by modulating the activity of the vitamin D receptor, it seems to like slow down and halt that neurodegeneration. So that's just one example of like, the question is, what's the best way to target that mechanism? Is it, mm -hmm. can we make a synthetic drug that, you know, activates the vitamin D receptor better than actual vitamin D? Or should we just use high dose vitamin D or something? But like, that's one of the targets. And they're like, how can we monetize this? Because <laughs> there's no, there's not enough money to be made in selling vitamin D3. But if we can make a drug that works better than vitamin D3 and activates that same vitamin D receptor, that sounds like a multi-billion dollar drug to me. So it's stuff like that. And when you just look at the science and then reverse engineer it, another example is homocysteine where, you know, it's a very well-established biomarker, but there is no pharmaceutical treatment for homocysteine. The only way to lower homocysteine would be like B vitamins and zinc and B6, but there's no money to be made in supplements, right? So it's crazy. Uh, so when you're doing this kind of research and you're, you know, looking at, okay, here's the pharmaceutical, this is how it works, and what can I do that might mimic or be better than, does any of, because to me, you're, you're so into the science and the research, which I think is amazing, but how much of, of what you start to think is true comes from, like, your own gut or, like, or... Yeah. Is there, is there a piece of that? No, that's a really, really good question. And yeah, believe me, I mean, I'm losing touch with reality year by year. Cause I'm like, you know, <laughs> like trying <laughs> when you, when you dig this deep down the rabbit hole and then you're trying to like convey it in a way that's understandable to like your just general population. it's just like, uh, but like with the, the vitamin D stuff that we just talked about, um, you know, are we at a point with the science that we can say vitamin D3 can cure neurodegeneration? No, like we can't say that. We're, we're talking about experimental, you know, mouse studies of neurodegeneration induced in a mouse and using freakishly high dose vitamin D to try to reverse it or whatever. But what we can probably safely say is vitamin D deficiency is a risk factor for neurodegeneration, right? So there's so much languaging there and it's like, so what would be like a good holistic lifestyle message to then convey to the masses? How about go outside and get some freaking sunshine every day? Cause <laughs> vitamin D regulates the tight junctions in your gut. It regulates the tight junctions of your blood brain barrier. It's, you know, it, it, it has efficacy against the current virus and everything. So, you know, there are these just holistic lifestyle messages that the pharmaceutical science can teach us. But pharmaceutical science is for the sake of making billion-dollar drugs, not for, well, let's tell the public that they should move outside and they should, you know, get more time in the sunshine and make sure that their vitamin D is at an optimal level, right? There's, there's not enough money to be made there. 
Uh, there's, yeah. you, like going outside is free. Like how does big pharma monetize you stepping out into the sunshine? Even though like, well, yeah, the science suggests that a lack of vitamin D and a lack of sunshine in your life might increase your risk of neurodegeneration. That right? one, that one point is so huge. And if there's anything that could sum up this, it's there's one side messaging don't go in the sun. It'll give you skin cancer, put all this toxic stuff on your skin, bloody blah, you know? And then there's another side saying, take like nature doesn't know as well as we do. So take our synthesized or, you know, high dose vitamin D in, in an amount that nature didn't determine just because you're lacking it. And then what you're saying is this really common sense. There you are. There you go with your common sense again. This thing in the middle that is so simple and so uncomplicated and, and what nature intended, you know, man is supposed to get a little sunshine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, the thing that I think is really beautiful is the science always points us back to nature, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is where like, we're, we're so tied up in our minds that we've lost our senses. That's a quote by Alan Watts. And it's like, as a species, as a collective population, we are so disconnected from our primal evolutionary roots of what it means to be a sentient being an organism on planet earth. Like we did not evolve living inside. We didn't evolve on processed food. We didn't evolve with glyphosate, right? Like we evolved in the dirt in the natural world. That's full of microbes and germs and whatever we, we evolved out in the sunshine. So this is where in a lot of ways, like I always like to kind of, you know, share the rhetorical sentiment of like, Hey, we are the only species in existence as far as we know that lives dysbiotically with the natural world. Like we are the dysbiosis, like Mm -hmm. as a species is our artificial processed modern lifestyle. That's really kind of killing us in a lot of ways. And it's only been in the past 100, 200 years that we've dramatically deviated from a more just natural, closer to the earth, organic way of living. Like a hundred years ago, there wasn't organic. It, it was just food, right? Like you get fresh produce from the farm. It wasn't, well, do I want the organic stuff that has less life to say right. or the right. conventional with more life? No, it was just fresh food. So or, we, or we didn't we even, or we didn't, senses. we didn't live near running water. We could wash the food either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's always kind of a back to nature sort of thing. And I always like to, you know, as, as a collective, we have to return to symbiosis. And that's something that just sticks in my head all the time. It's like, I don't, I don't know what that means, what that looks like. We would have to kind of fuse our modern technology with a more close to nature primal way of living. You know, that's the only way that we're going to be able to get the best of both worlds. But, you know, we're living in the matrix now. Stay inside, eat fake food. Don't actually ever hug another human being. We're the Jetsons. Like, you know, yeah, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. You have to be a, a free thinker in this world and use logic and reason and critical thinking. And there's such a lack of that anymore. Um, yeah. I don't think we should need scientific research to say that eating, you know, plants is good for you or, or spending time in nature is good for you. Like, if that's really the case, you know, like we have so just lost our way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so tell us really quickly, besides the fact that you're doing all this really interesting stuff with this, these labs, are you still teaching? Where can people find you if they want to take classes or get in touch with you? Tell us where, what you're up to and where people can find you. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, Instagram is kind of my main platform that, that drives everything. That's just like my massive platform brand awareness. So that's at the holistic savage, which I've thought about changing my username because some people get offended. They choose to get offended kind of thing. Um, no, Karen like, was like, Karen yeah. was like, Ooh, I like that word savage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But some people don't. And you know, I can't, can't help you, but I think uh, you should keep it. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to change it. Don't change like, it's, it. It's, it's too it's fun. Cool. And yeah, you know, cool. um, but that's, that's the main platform. And I just pump out content on there. Yeah. And then from there, I kind of channel them to like, well, if you want to, you know, work with me as a client, that's metabolic solutions. Or then if you want to mentor underneath me, like you did, that's metabolic solutions Institute. And we're getting ready to roll out the, uh, the new lab test, which is called the mental map or, um, microglial activation profiles. So that's kind of our big thing right now. Um, and but if I you're think interested, if you're interested in that, th- I have noticed that you have lots of posts on that on your Instagram account. So yeah. Are you going to be doing a class around that, around the panel that you developed? Yeah, we're actually doing a, a two-day uh, seminar for practitioners in October. And we're planning on doing like a certification for it of like, I'm a MAP certified practitioner and, and all that. So um, we're kind of splitting it of we want to popularize this test and panel among practitioners and trained providers on how to use it. But we're also going to be just directly selling it to the public because I think people need access to that data to, you know, kind of guide their own sort of self-healing journey. So we're, you know, really directing it to two major kind of customer bases. Heck yeah. Oh, it was a delight. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. Oh, so great. So yeah, nice to see you again. Awesome. awesome. I really appreciate you both. Yeah. It's so, so fun. You guys, that's a wrap. What a great podcast. If you're a nurse, head over to www rnegade.pro follow the prompts do the activity fill out the evaluation for the podcast that you just listened to and get a ce could we just make ce by podcast the norm please bye